0: It, it does show a, a severe disconnect between the MLA and the academic community that it is supposedly representing.
1: There is a hunger out there, not only among NEP members, but also among Canadians, to have an honest conversation on Israel and Palestine, and to actually champion human rights, to champion principled leadership. The Electronic
2: Intifada. The
3: Electronic Intifada.
2: The Electronic Intifada. The electronic
3: intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Oakland. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. In the second half of our podcast today, you'll hear from a Palestinian-Canadian organizer working with others to push the new Democratic Party to adopt a more progressive policy on Palestine. But first, members of the Modern Language Association, the largest academic association for scholars of language and literature, voted in June to quote, refrain from endorsing the boycott of Israeli academic institutions, dealing a blow to scholars who have for years been organizing within the MLA to support the call from Palestinian students and academics to boycott Israeli academic institutions until Israel stops violating Palestinian rights. MLA members for justice in Palestine, a group at the forefront of organizing in support of the academic boycott within the MLA, wrote recently that, After a series of successes, this result represents an unfortunate but not dispiriting setback for the academic boycott movement within the MLA. Setbacks are not uncommon for Palestinians or anyone committed to advocating Palestinian rights. Palestinians have suffered an almost endless series of defeats at the hands of the Israeli military, but affirm their right to exist in Palestine forging a remarkable culture of resistance that stands in opposition to Israel's ruthless colonialism. Joining us to talk about the MLA vote and the next steps for supporting the academic boycott are two professors and members of the Modern Language Association, Salah Hassan of Michigan State University and Rebecca Comey of the University of Toronto. Thank you both for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks for having us. So uh, Salah, let's uh, start off with you. The MLA has now officially adopted a stance that is hostile to academic boycotts of Israel. Uh, Can you briefly talk about what led up to this vote? Um, This was, of course, after a debacle in January around a resolution in favor of the boycott, which was denigrated by Israel uh, advocates within the organization and by outside lobby groups. Um, Talk about the timeline here.
4: Okay, well, I think we have to step back a little bit. About three years ago, um, Rebecca Kume and David Lloyd uh, took the initiative to draft a resolution uh, calling on the association to endorse the academic boycott of Israel. And in response to, in part in response to, but also perhaps also trying to preempt uh, further initiatives, uh, Russell Berman led uh, uh, a counter-initiative to uh put forward uh the resolution that ultimately was ratified by the membership, resolution twenty seventeen. And
3: who, who is Russell Berman?
4: Russell Berman is a uh, professor of German at Stanford University and he is a former president of the MLA. And um, he uh he, he along with uh Carrie Nelson who was very much in the forefront and uh a handful of other MLA members um, had in, in in previous years been accusing MLA members of putting forward boycott resolutions that weren't in fact boycott any any resolution that expressed solidarity with Palestinians was being attacked by this group of MLA members as being uh, uh, unfair to Israel and um, you know at times people were being accused of being anti-Semitic um, so any, it, there there been some background to this but in I think it was 2015, um, the resolutions went to, to the um, MLA Delegate Assembly Organizing Committee to be put forward for discussion and debate at the, um, I guess it would have been at the 2015 MLA. Yeah, it was the fall of so, 2014. Yeah. So, um, so it was at that point that the MLA uh, Delegate Assembly Organizing Committee suggested that we hold off withdraw our resolutions temporarily, at least, and allow for the two groups, our group, MLA Members for Justice in Palestine, and the other group, which is called MLA Members for Scholars' Rights, and uh, educate the uh, membership on this particular issue of academic boycott. Now, this all happened, of course, in the wake of the American Studies Association Endorsing the academic boycott and Asian American studies and Native American studies and many other groups that uh, professional associations endorsing it. So, um, so the idea was that the MLA membership wasn't quite prepared and that we both groups were asked to to hold off and prepare the ground for um, for a membership vote through a series of annual discussions that the MLA was going to allow to happen and those included um, designated panels um, a debate uh, town hall meeting and um, and we accepted that and uh, so when the when it came to the end of the the, the three year period in January 2017 the um, the the resolutions went to the delegate assembly for a vote and uh, there was uh, special rules that were put in place and we weren't really fully aware of those special rules. For example, they had strict time limits on the discussion. And uh, during the Delegate Assembly meeting, which is the kind of like the Parliament of the MLA or the Congress of the MLA, it's, these are elected officials. Some of them are appointed, uh, but uh, many of them are elected uh, representatives of various uh, constituencies within the MLA. And it consists of uh, a couple of hundred people and uh, they're the ones who vote on these resolutions, whether or not they go to the membership. And um, there's, uh, there were special rules put in place that limited the amount of time for discussion for each resolution. And um, and we, really, we weren't really uh, aware that this was going to happen. And there was a, a discussion that seemed to be abridged because of the time limits that were set. And not everybody was allowed to speak in favor of the boycott resolution and against this other resolution um there was a third resolution that was put forward which was even more um hostile to palestinians in the sense that it blamed the palestinians it blamed the palestinian authority and hamas for the violation of the academic freedoms of palestinians without mentioning israel that was the third resolution uh, series and um and when the vote happened at, at the delegate assembly uh We voted on all three resolutions, and then the results were were given and This was a little bit strange also because the our resolution the vote on our resolution uh took place and um I think they voted on ours first is that right Rebecca on the boycott resolution and then um then we voted on the anti boycott resolution. And then we voted on the other resolution and then they revealed the results. And this was a little bit unusual because typically what would happen is you would vote on a resolution and then they would show the results and then you would vote on another resolution. But because these three resolutions were all tied together, um, the, uh, uh, you know, they, I think they, they, we voted on the first two and then what happened was Russell Berman withdrew, even though he wasn't the sponsor of the third resolution. Um, he called for uh, a motion to withdraw the third resolution because they had won that that vote, um, and it was it was it was clear that that uh, the delegate assembly was not in favor of uh, an academic boycott resolution. Uh, we were a little bit surprised that not only were they not in favor of an academic boycott, but they were actually hostile to it in the sense that they voted in favor by a small majority. Uh, uh, to support a preemptive resolution that called on the association to refrain from endorsing academic boycott. Then afterwards, it goes to the membership.
3: Uh, that's the voice of Salah Hassan of Michigan State University. Uh, Rebecca, as as BDS campaigns grow in size and popularity, uh, the MLA, with this um, vote, against uh, academic boycotts of Israel is sending a clear message to academics who are Palestinian and those who advocate for Palestinian rights to be silent. Uh, What does it mean for the MLA to go in the opposite direction of where most student groups or academic associations or um, conversations on on campuses are heading?
0: Well, it, it it, it, it says a lot about, I mean, not only about the MLA, which I think is a is is a large and on the, on the conservative side, even within professional associate, academic associations. Um, but it speaks to, I think a growing divide within the you know within the academic community in general, between, um, between the sort of the profession itself and those who actually work and study within the profession. as you say, the this is a time when critical awareness, of Israel-Palestine is constantly rising when the terms of the discussion you know, has dramatically changed even in the even in the last three years during which um, the boycott has been under such discussion at the MLA and elsewhere. You know, with the student movements on campuses and all the grassroots organizing and within the cultural sphere, um, increasing awareness and respect for the boycott as a you know as as really a, a powerful. And at this point, the the most um, effective measure that can be be taken against the violations of human rights in by by, by Israel. Um, it, it does show a, a severe disconnect between the MLA and the academic community that it is supposedly representing. Um, so I don't know really what to account for it. I mean I want to I want to just kind of underline the oddity of this second resolution, which was a superfluous one. I mean, the the boycott resolution had been defeated. Um, So the resolution to not boycott or to refrain from boycott is a, you know, it's an extra and quite aggressive layer, um, which makes a positive, it makes an actual statement. And it's important to underline, it's not just a statement against Academic boycotts, in principle, in the name of academic freedom, is actually a specific resolution against the boycott, uh, the the Palestinian, the, the the boycott that's been called for by by PAC, by the Palestinian civil society. So it's a specific um, singling out, we might might say, of Israel um, as as exempt from boycott both uh, boycott measures. Um, so I think the 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 resolution um, more shocking even that, than that it was um, that it passed not only the delegate assembly but also the ratification vote with the with the, the how, how few people actually uh, managed to to vote against it the MLA has a you know very uh, has has a. A voting rule by which a, a quorum has to be reached, and 10% of the membership, a, a, a resolution can only be passed if 10% of the membership um, vote for it. Um, and that, that 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 quorum was met by the those who supported the anti-boycott resolution, but only half as many people voted against it. So there's a there's a kind of apolitical drift within the association itself, which is which is as, really as disturbing as, as anything else, how few people actually were, I think, possibly even aware of the, the, the importance of this boycott, of this anti-boycott resolution, or even that it was happening.
3: Uh, how will this affect students, scholars, and professors who are being targeted uh, and harassed by Israel advocacy groups on, on US campuses?
0: I think it will go a long way to encouraging repression um, at all levels, at the level of state legislation, where, as as you know, some 19 states have already introduced anti-BDS legislation, um, sometimes quietly while everyone is distracted by the Trump shenanigans, and and sometimes um, not so quietly, as well as the anti-protest measures. so, we see on campuses everywhere this chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine is being closed down. This speaker, that speaker is being disinvited. this job search is being cancelled. This faculty member is brought in for interrogation. Um and at a less official level, you know all of the online and offline harassment, defamation, uh, investigations, even threats to Faculty and students who are, um, who are who are supportive of or or politically active in Palestinian solidarity. Um, so this kind of gives a it certainly fuels the fire of the of the, the repressive movements, both official and unofficial, on campuses everywhere, um, and gives and gives a kind of credence. A tacit credence to many of the much of the misinformation um, that is that is spread about anti bDS um, as being anti-semitic for example um, so I think it will have a in the short run I think it will definitely have a uh, a destructive effect on on the culture of 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 of, of dissent both within the university and and outside it i think in the in the long term it is um it's i, I don't think it's going to um i certainly don't think it's going to it's, it's the last word it is a setback as um as is only predictable but it's it's a real one and it raises the question really of, of um of where is the most effective way to concentrate um, Concentrate our energies as as activists. Are these large professional associations really the the place to do that, or what are what are the what are the options at this point?
3: Uh, that's Rebecca Comey yeah. of the University of Toronto. Salat, did you want to add to that?
4: Yeah, I think that um, just going back to your previous question about what does this mean for the MLA or how to how to interpret this and really, I think that the MLA clearly is in a crisis mode right now in terms of. You know, the membership decline over the last three years has been um, close to 20%, I think. You know, they went from about 25,000 down to about 18,000 or 19,000. Um, and uh, there's a real uh, turnover now taking place in terms of the executive directors leaving. Um, and uh, I think that you know, there's a lot of concern about what is the status of the humanities and what is the role of the MLA in the future in advocating for the humanities. And so I think that anything that looks like uh, an attempt to, at, um, you know, political action that is outside of the humanities, is, is it's very difficult to get any leverage there within the MLA right now. And so in some respects, we're, you know, our, our initiative and our movement within the MLA to promote um, – the boycott of Israeli academic institutions was uh came at at a, at a difficult time and uh for the MLA and understandably the way that the um, the anti-boycott position was well this is you know this isn't really the business of the MLA why is the MLA taking up this issue so they were really effective in and at least within a small but but you know 10% of membership voted with them uh, in, in making that argument and getting people on board. Now, I would say that there are some indicators that, you know, this is, this is part of a conservative trend within the humanities, this kind of disengagement. And, uh, but it's also being partly, uh, it's part of, a, um, of a, a mission that has been undertaken by a lot of um, pro-Israeli groups is to make the argument that the academic boycott is a violation of academic freedom. And uh, and that's that's something else that was really used to um, undermine our position, which is that, you know, Palestinian human rights includes academic freedom of Palestinians. And um, so what they were able to do was, is, you know, make a call for uh, defending the rights of Israeli academics. Um, and, and and somehow that had a lot of appeal and 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 but I think and I believe there's there's enough in, in, uh, evidence to indicate that that this was also widely supported from the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in Israel and in fact some of the, very little reporting in Israel on the vote at the ML the membership vote but in the, the initial reporting from Israel after the Delegate Assembly vote indicated very clearly that um, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs was uh, backing Kerry uh, Nelson and Russell Berman, and that, um, uh, and there was some reporting uh, in the Times of Israel that indicated that uh, the ministry looked on this uh, the results of the membership vote very favorably. Um, so I don't think that that's the external factors were the only factor, but I do think that they played a role, and especially were important. In that this had to be a victory for them in order to roll back the successes of BDS over the last five years and uh, and so the MLA was kind of a test case for them and so and I think that the MLA was propitious in the in the sense that it was the right site to do that because you have very uh, I'm using this word in a kind of uh, qualified manner but very conservative elements in the sense that people are very concerned with protecting the profession and the sort of protection of the profession and like why why would we want do any display uh endorsing the academic boycott might hurt the mla people will not want to be members of the mla Um, it might be a violation of the law the brandis center sent in a letter saying that you know there'd be a lawsuit against the mla should they endorse the academic boycott so these kinds of things um were were were, uh, very effective in intimidating but also mobilizing Support against the boycott, and the MLA, unlike I would say uh, the American Anthropology Association, where you have a you know a longstanding commitment to social activism among anthropologists and a critique and critical anthropology, even though there's lots of criticism within the MLA, like critical work being done. Uh, if you look at the membership, you see that it's also very parochial and turned inward on the profession in ways that anthropology isn't. Um, and I think just to add to that, for students, one of the things that we're seeing is that students, graduate students in particular, and I would say this, this extends to more and more faculty with adjuncts being having limited ability to, to become members because it's expensive, the convention is very expensive, is that those... Um, individuals in the profession are increasingly marginalized from the MLA. And so what that means is that the higher paid faculty, the tenured faculty, Mm -hmm. are the ones who are increasingly um, the majority and uh, control more. And so I think that for more students, graduate students in particular, and um, adjunct faculty, who see themselves as being allied with progressive issues and with Palestine solidarity, this is going to push them to be, to have a more opportunistic relationship with the association, not want to provide service, not want to be on committees, not, you know, the the association depends on memberships to, on members to um, participate in many of the constituent committees um, for the various uh, areas of study. So, um, People won't be willing to to have a regular membership. You have to commit to a three-year membership in order to do that, and um, and so we're going to lose those constituents as regular members increasingly because they'll say, well, this doesn't this isn't an association that represents me. I'm only going to become a member for a year to participate in the convention, or because I'm applying for a job and I need to go to MLA or something like that.
3: And I just wanted to to backtrack and say uh, uh, the the name that you brought up a couple times, Kerry Nelson. If that name is familiar to our listeners and to our readers, that's because he was heavily involved in backing the decision by the chancellor of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in blocking um, the the uh, the professorship of uh, Stephen Salaita, of course, um, and for firing him two weeks before he was uh, about to begin <laughs> teaching. Um, what, what are the next steps here in terms of um, the, the MLA members for, for Justice in Palestine? A couple days ago came out with a statement protesting the ratification of the anti-BDS resolution at the MLA. Um, what are the next steps for, for MLA members for Justice in Palestine and, and scholars and students who uh, are still uh, in support of, of backing the uh, academic boycott?
0: Okay, well, um, there's, there's more than one next step, and I think that's important to register um, within the uh, within the MLA um, that different people are are taking are, are taking different courses of action. A lot of people are planning to resign from the MLA or, or already have who find that that they cannot continue to be aligned with an organization that has taken such a um, such a reactionary position. Those, there are those um, who have decided to stay within the MLA um, and to continue to fight the battle within the MLA, which will, you know, which will involve, you know, in the first place, getting this uh, anti-boycott resolution rescinded, um, so that the solidarity uh, campaign can be continued. And and both are, you know, both are 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 very. Um, are both very powerful responses and powerful tactics, and both are taking place at once. So what we're going to see is, on the one hand, a you know a, a concerted exodus from the MLA, and on the other hand, um, and a concerted um, restarting of the engine. But it's all so it's all you know it's all happening, and and um, many many there's many reactions, and this is all part of the part of the struggle
4: yeah I would just add that um, the it's really important, I think, for people to this is my own personal view is that people have different kinds of institutional relationships with the MLA. And some people have longstanding established commitments. Some, of them, some people are lifetime members. Some people are um, you know occasional members, and some people have done some service uh, for particular reasons that they want to advance issues within the MLA and the MLA is is a, is a site of political activity within the profession. And so I think we need to respect that and understand that, you know, just, just as with us politics, you know, you, you, you can't just vote on that one issue. You have to understand that this is a site of political action and, um, and it's, it's unusual in academia and it has been historically unusual that, you have um, even 500 people within your association that support Palestinian solidarity, and you know um, I think within the MLA there are there are um, people who feel very strongly about this issue, but at the same time feel very strongly about their institutional commitment to the MLA, and it's paradoxical right now. Um, in the past, it hasn't it hasn't been really an issue because the MLA, in fact, has. Voted in favor of some pa- pa- like Palestinian issue-related uh, resolutions, um, so there, there, it's 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 complicated, paradoxical, and very much like our institutional compromised situ- uh, situation in our universities, where many presidents of universities condemned the American Studies Association vote, and many of us were um participated in that association continue to participate in it and and support it and so you know we we have to kind of accept that that's part of the contradiction and so leaving the association is an important protest and i fully endorse that and um and i think that people should do that if it works for them but for other people that's just not not going to be the right solution and they might actually feel like it's important to continue struggling within the mla because um you know, work needs to be done to reverse this, this, uh, this resolution. And, um, and there are within, within the, within the bylaws of the association, uh, resolutions of this sort, um, even though they've been ratified by the membership can be rescinded. And so people are looking at that as an option. They're also looking at ways that they can organize more, um, activities around Palestinian literature and culture and, um, perhaps set up a forum specifically for palestinian literature and culture uh so i think that um what we need to keep in mind is that in fact had this resolution not been endorsed the association still would be refraining from the boycott so the resolution simply states what was the position of the association prior to the vote which is that it does not it does not endorse the boycott but it, the, the, the resolution itself doesn't, in fact, say it condemns the academic boycott. Um, and it's non-binding on the membership, on allied associations, or even on internal committees of the MLA. Uh, so, for example, um, the Arab uh, global Arab literature um, uh, committee could, in fact, itself pass um, a, an endorsement of the academic boycott, even though it is a constituent part of the MLA, um, and any member can quietly or uh, publicly pronounce their support of the academic boycott. Um, so it's uh, it simply uh, states clearly what the position was prior to the vote, and um, so in that regard, even though. It does register a, uh, a, a something like a condemnation of the academic boycott. Um, the language of it is very carefully crafted to not do that. And, and I think we need to recognize that and um, allow for the opening then to be a space for people who remain within the MLA to continue to um, work in solidarity with Palestinians. The
0: resolution and the response to... Responses to it also serve to underscore um, the real uh, disparities and, and inequalities within the academic food chain. I mean, the, the disparity between those who are securely employed and the increasing number of academics whose whose position and, and livelihood is very tenuous. Um, for one thing, the MLA, you know, still remains the the dominant forum for for hiring, um, it's where job interviewing goes on. But also, and so, so, um, so for, for younger and 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 junior faculty or simply insecure or underemployed faculty, um, the the uh, when it when is when one continues to be bound to an institution which is not representing one's one politically or or morally, and that's you know that's a real that's a real dilemma. But it also it also serves in so far as it it lends its own institutional imprimatur to to, to very strong anti boycott culture within university administrations across the continent. Um, it also serves to you know to under to really undermine the the efforts of of faculty who do not have a secure position within the academy. So it functions even though it's Says nothing about um, condemning boycott. What it's doing is is adding a, a kind of institutional luster to those who to institutional forces which not only condemn the boycott um, but also prohibit activity um, ad, ad, advocacy of the boycott, and furthermore, um, and furthermore, defame the the. Political activities of those working for the boycott by by spreading misinformation about what the boycott is in the first place, um, but also spreading you know the downright defamation about that the boycott or or Palestinian solidarity in general as being as being anti-Semitic, for example. So it's doing all these things, which is contributing to it's it's, it's also feeding off and contributing to the to the. Um, to the real tensions within academic culture at at this moment, largely produced by the the crisis of underemployment that
3: that pervades. And if people want to learn more about the organizing being done from within the Modern Language Association, you can go to mlaboycott.wordpress.com. We'll also link to that on the Electronic Intifada podcast blog post. Thank you, Rebecca Comey of the University of Toronto and Salah Hassan of the Michigan State Selah Hassan of Michigan State University for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so thanks. Coming up after a short musical break, how are activists in Canada organizing to push progressive policy on Palestine? Stay
2: tuned. <laughs> كل شي مش عادي الشغلة مش بس طبخه تمحشي مش عادي وانت تمشي جمعك جدار بيغطي الأفاق والأفكار كل الجرافيتي المرسوم حاجز اسمنتي مسموم في دماغك مش عادي تحط شوكه في عيون جارك وأخوك أكيد القصد مش إسرائيل القصد إنه إحنا سرنا 48 فصيل مش عادي مش عادي تمشي تعيش في مخيم لاجئين جوه فلسطين مش عادي دمرك عن الحاجة تحس حالك هادي مش عادي. مش عادي كيف الكل بيكسم في بلادي مش عادي في طفولة اطفالي أتوالي. اعلمهم فره بلادي مش عادي. أتوالي. 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 مش عادي تستحمل كل هالألم انت مش سادي شادي مع ادوة الوقت الخام فيروز الحقيقة كدام معيول للمغنضين بعفوس بس نسيق المستوطنات اللي بعيدة ما سافت فيوز في التدوير عبوس فوس ايدك وجهو كفا اذا انت بكل هاد مش راضي
3: In Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. We now go to Canada, where activists are pushing the New Democratic Party, or the NDP, to adopt a progressive policy on Palestine. Recently, Palestine rights organizers sent an open letter to NDP members outlining the current problems with the party's policies. While the NDP purports to be a leftist party, the leadership has failed to stand up for Palestinian rights and has adopted centrist or conservative policies that mirror the United States' Democratic Party's support for Israel. Meanwhile, as our next guest points out, Canadians are mobilizing to grow the Palestinian-led boycott, divestment and sanctions movement and are outpacing the politics of their elected leaders by leaps and bounds. Joining us to talk about all of this is Yazan Khader. Yazan is a Palestinian organizer based in Canada and a member of several Palestine solidarity groups. He has been working with other activists to push the NDP on Palestine rights issues. Yazan, thank you so much for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
3: So let's begin by having you lay out the context from which you're organizing. The NDP's stance on Palestine and its support for Israel uh, looks pretty familiar to those of us who have seen how the U.S.'s Democratic Party has has treated Palestinians. But meanwhile, Palestine advocacy in Canada is growing and becoming more mainstream. Uh, Can you talk about what's happening and why you're focusing on the National Democratic Party, the NDP?
1: Well, the National Democratic Party is, um, I suppose, the next natural step in terms of uh, Palestine organizers who want to, you know, get a little bit into the mainstream. Um, We've had, I think, last year in December, uh, the Green Party endorsing a set of policies that were very, very well received by us um, you know they they uh, championed uh, not only good policies and and very explicit demands but also back that up with you know saying things like well, we're, we would endorse a military embargo and, and uh, renegotiating the Canada-Israel free trade agreement uh, so what we're trying to do I guess is, is something within those lines of the NDP and the NDP does have grassroots rank and file members who are very, who know a lot about Palestine and who are willing to support. But unfortunately, there's this kind of discord uh, within the party on the issue of Palestine, mainly with others who are a little more establishment oriented, are a little more, you know, we want to get in government, whatever that cost is, even if that means that we would have to sacrifice some of our values and commitments to human rights and and international law and what we're trying to do is is push the other side and really make it clear that no there is a hunger out there um, not only among NAP members but also among Canadians who are outside of you know those circles uh, to have an honest conversation on Israel and Palestine and to actually champion human rights and to champion principled
4: leadership.
3: Uh, Can you talk about some of the individual NDP leaders here and how their policies on Palestine have actually conflicted with the NDP's basic tenets? Uh, How has that taken shape?
1: So uh, right now, the leadership that we currently have, the the one that we, um, it's it's an interim leadership, it's the leadership of uh, Thomas Mulcair. He was the person who uh, was selected uh, to be, or was elected to be leader from among the members um, and who led us into the 2015 federal election. His stance on this has been, uh, I mean, dismal and unimpressive. Uh, In the Gaza War, the initial, in in 2014, his initial statements, uh, you know, put the blame on Palestinians and and made no substantial mention of Israel's bad behavior, shall we say, uh, towards the Palestinians and and made no contextual analysis of of what was happening and why it's happening and why why we've reached this point. And it really paralleled. Uh, conservative and centrist slogans, and there was quite a bit of an eruption from uh, members. Um, I think this show this fell in line with, you know, the broader framework in which Mulcair's leadership fell, and that's a wishy-washy kind of, you know, non-committal. I would say not very principled leadership. You know, very strong on certain aspects, but not that committed on others, and uh, some, some attribute uh, the loss that we had in 2015 election be- to that. Um, so the current leadership has not been very satisfactory in terms of its commitment to our principles, in terms of its very performance. So, you know, th- the usual excuse we get on why we're not following through on a lot of our principles um, is that we want to be electable, but evidently that didn't lead us anywhere. Uh so I think the right approach has been to commit to the principles and to commit into following through on them with policies and with agendas uh, in Parliament. Uh, now, Mulcair is on his way out. He's the interim leader. He was uh, booted out in uh, uh, the 2016 uh, convention. And right now we're in the midst of a leadership election. So uh, I guess this is fertile ground to, to really show uh, where a lot of members want this party to go, and it's fertile ground to redirect the party. Uh, so rank-and-file members have this opportunity, I guess, to say, this is what we want you to talk about. And what we're trying to show with the letter, what we tried to show with the letter, is that uh, a lot of NDP members are, are really, really uh, eager to have uh, the leadership of the party take the party uh, into that direction when it comes to Israel and Palestine and to say things that... Um, are principled to uh, to call out Israel on its misbehavior, to stand in solidarity with Palestinians, and to follow through on that and to not just hug Israel into it, but simply say, you know, if you don't do this, there will be repercussions economically, diplomatically, and so on.
3: We're speaking with Yazan Khader uh, in Canada. Yazan, can you talk about this open letter? What does it say? What's been the response from NDP party fi- officials so far, if, if there's been mm-hmm. any at all?
1: Well, the letter. Um, it I guess you could say it has two parts. The first part describes the situation with Palestinians. It describes the situation uh, for Palestinians who live in the West Bank, for Palestinians who live in Gaza. Uh, you know the settlements, the blockade. It also describes the Nakba and puts a lot of emph- emphasis on that and, and highlights how, you know, this is traceable. Uh, the situation that we have right now is is traceable to seventy years of history. Um, and then it says, well, look we're acknowledging certain truths here, we're not trying to agitate for the sake of agitation, where there's an objective here. And the objective is for the NDP to um, uh, show principled conviction, the principled conviction that we know it has a history of demonstrating. And so in light of that, and in that spirit, we proposed a set of um, uh, a set of proposals for the NDP to commit to championing in both opposition and in government. Explicitly, we, we, you know, call on the NDP to explicitly condemn uh, Israeli settlements as a violation of international law, uh, to call upon Israel to halt uh, settlement construction, to respect uh, the Palestinian Palestinians of Israel, to resolve the situation with refugees, to lift the blockade and the occupation. And in that framework, we also have points saying we want the NDP to not only say those things, you know, as token gestures, but to also pursue and support the diplomatic uh, diplomatic and economic means of, of pressuring Israel into it. And we explicitly called upon the NDP to, to uh, agree or to champion the policy of renegotiating the Canada-Israel free trade agreement, to um, exclude any products from the settlements, uh, to champion a, a, a military embargo that would... Uh, exist until the occupation ends and a, and a just and fair resolution um, exists. And, you know, we make reference to the fact that the, Palis- that the a lot of Canadians are already there. Um, trade unions that the NDP is known to be allied with, student groups like the Canadian Federation of Students, uh, faith-based institutions, the United Church of Canada, for example, are already there. We have policies in those groups and in those institutions that are explicitly in support of Palestinians. There is a hunger out there uh, for for an honest conversation on Israel Palestine, for someone to, you know, not only say buzzwords and and, uh, and show token gestures, but to actually follow through on a lot of what's being said. And, and that's really what the what the letter is trying to, to say. And we have I think about fifty academics or so and and uh, twenty to thirty community leaders and activists and, and organizations who have signed on to, to showcase the hunger that exists among Canadians
3: then how can the recent elections in the UK and the popularity of Jeremy Corbyn who you know as you know is a longtime champion of Palestinian rights uh, factor into what could be possible here in, in pushing the NDP in, in as you said you know um, showing party leadership that um, that progressive politics include rights-based analysis on on Palestine and Palestinian people what's the lesson here that you're hoping that officials can learn
1: right um I mean, I think we're we're reaching a, a point uh, in time where people are are seeing through the buzzwords and the and the token gestures. And and Jeremy Corbyn's success in the British uh, election um, is, as you mentioned, good evidence of this. Uh, we know that uh, he was uh, laughed at and and um, not not much was expe- was expected of him, and yet. As soon as the election was called in uh, in Britain, uh, the in, in the UK, sorry, uh, the immediate uh, trend in the polls was as Jeremy Corbyn was showcasing what he was for, and as he was being honest about you know some of his faults in the past and some of the things that uh, he has committed to doing, um, uh, the the support grew, and the expected result of an upset for the for the Labour Party and and complete victory for the Conservative Party, was kind of flipped almost. Uh, the Labour Party gained a lot of seats and, and uh, the Conservative Party lost its majority. And I think there's a bit of recognition to that um, in among leadership candidates. We have very impressive uh, leadership candidates in the NDP now who are recognizing that what's needed is uh, not just someone who, you know, will, will whatever is trendy, but someone who's who's sticking to their guns, so to speak. Nikki Ashton's candidacy has been very impressive. Uh, Peter Julian's as well. They've both uh, spoken about Palestine. um, uh, And uh, Peter Julian has explicitly called out the settlements and the blockade on Gaza. Um, Nikki Ashton has explicitly, uh, you know, stood with uh, Palestinians uh, to commemorate the Nakba and the, the, uh, the expulsion of, of Palestinians from their homeland and the pain and the trauma that they've suffered through. So I think there is a recognition of that in the NDP, and uh, I'm very optimistic as to where we're headed, and I hope that those principal leadership uh, candidates uh, will succeed in leading the party, because I think that not only is that good for progressives and the values that we stand for, but also for the party in and of itself, from a purely strategic and, and tactical point of view. I think that's how we can... Guarantee our success by sticking to our guns, by sticking to our principles and and uh, and pushing them through.
3: Yazan, how can people learn more and and you know get involved in, in general mobilizing uh, in Canada mm-hmm. and elsewhere?
1: Well, uh, the first thing I would say is is go to the letter. Um, check out what it's demanding and who's signing on to it and and the you know the broad support that we have at the grassroots level. Um, and Right now, we're in the works of of uh, organizing ourselves. There's a, there's a whole team. i'm 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 not the only person working on this, of course., uh, there's a whole team of people who are very, very passionate about bringing up this issue, and we're uh, trying to build a platform for for communicating for people across Canada and and for allies elsewhere who want to support us uh, to mobilize ourselves, to organize ourselves so that we can get the party to bring the voice of the rank and file members. Uh, on the issue of Palestine uh, to the forefront.
3: And uh, that open letter, we will link to it on uh, the Electronic Intifada on the blog post for this podcast. Yazan Hader, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. Man. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.